Now, Dave Kaufman hosts The Kaufman Show with Dave Kaufman, but also Jay Farrar. The Kaufman Show, only on TSN 690. Welcome back. It's the Kaufman Show on TSN 690. Dave Kaufman and Jay Farrar. Jay, we're going to start right away with something really exciting. You're, you're, you're good? I'm good. You're all right? I, I'm, yeah. You're ready to go? I can't wait. All right, good. Let's uh, let's talk Olympics. Oh. Oh, oh no, that's you exciting. Sound, <laughs> you did not sound excited Well, there. I thought you were going to blow my mind with something. But... Well, I am. I'm, yeah. I'm going to blow your mind, uh, take you back on a little trip here. Oh. Do you remember 1988. I do. You remember the Jamaican bobsled team? I do. Or do you remember the John Candy version that came out four years later? I have to make a confession. Yeah? I've never seen that movie. You know, I kind of want to reach around the table and give you a big hug for that because- Really? Yeah, I, oh, I think that's great. I was going to go home and 
and watch it? Netflix it. No, 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 no. There's no, no point. There is absolutely no point. Because there's no valuable research involved in that. None. No. None. You're much better off- uh, With another movie. Hearing the true story. Ah. It's called Breaking the Ice, the true story of the 88 Jamaican bobsled team, and it's a short documentary that is on the Sports on Earth website, produced by Jason, sorry, directed by Jason Reed, who uh, also directed the inspiring Sonic's Gate, the full-length documentary. Jason joins us now. Back, Welcome back to the program, Jason. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me on again. I mean, it couldn't be much better in Seattle with the Seahawks Super Bowl victory other than if the Sonics were coming back. Well, so and things are good up here. Weren't you at the Super Bowl? I was at the Super Bowl. That is correct. We actually were, were out in New York doing, doing some shooting for our new documentary called The Kicker on NFL Kickers, among some other things. And three hours before the game, we still don't have tickets. And being huge Seattle sports fans, we just threw down on stuff up a couple of couple hours before the game and it ended up at the Super Bowl of all places. So Good for it's you, pretty, man. It's pretty amazing. Good for you. And that must have been a weird weekend. I remember the uh the Thunder were playing in New Jersey that weekend, weren't they? Well in Brooklyn. But yeah, oh, they Brooklyn, were okay. they were uh there and we were actually going to go to that game and do our kind of Sonic antics where we go behind the Oklahoma State Thunder bench and protest the zombie Sonics. wave our Sonic flags, but we decided to we couldn't get the right tickets to get on national TV, so we we went ahead and just like held our money for the Super Bowl, which cost about six times as much as, as it would have cost to go to the Brooklyn game. But. Yeah, but you got to see your team win the Super Bowl in the flesh, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, and the best part about it is David Stern also retired while we were in New York City, so it really was probably the greatest weekend in Seattle sports history. <laughs> Perfect scenario, <laughs> amazing stuff. Uh, let's talk a bit about this new documentary, though, because I was fascinated by it. I came across it last night and reached out to you right away. It's uh, so cool to see the real story and not that that Hollywood Disneyfication of it that that so often happens to great sports stories. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm a. I'm so glad that you discovered it. You know, Sports on Earth, a really cool, cool, relatively new website that it's along the same line as, as Grantland, but they just started producing their own, uh, you know, kind of original sports documentary content. We've actually been lucky enough to make the first two. Uh, the second one being uh, Breaking the Ice the true story of the 88 Jamaican bobsled team. And that was really the whole purpose behind the project is to say, hey, you know, Disney created this in our collective memories, this cool runnings thing. Wherever everybody remembers history has cool runnings depicted it, not necessarily as it actually happened. So we were lucky enough to get the opportunity to interview a couple guys on the team and the coach and the guy who kind of came up with the original concept and put together a nice little 17-and-a-half-minute short that, as you mentioned, just premiered on the Sports on Earth website on on Saturday night is when it went live, right before the Jamaican bobsled team went for the first time in in uh, 12 years in the Olympics this year. And the team finished last uh, this time around, and they right. they also finished last in Calgary. But they were they had started off quite well, had placed ahead of a few other teams. It they revolutionized the way that bobsled bobsledders are picked by other countries, right? Well, I mean, it's just an interesting thing uh, how it went down. Is like really like what happened is. You know, in the Winter Olympics were notoriously just these European countries that had, in the United States, of course, that had very strong alpine kind of roots in, in their country. But what the Jamaican bobsled team did was basically said, hey, we can take athletes from an area of the world that doesn't have any snow, has never seen a bobsled. When these guys, as you'll see in the documentary, the first time they went up to Lake Placid after they were kind of chosen just because of their athletic prowess, that they were walked on ice for the first time in Lake Placid four months before the Olympics. So the whole point, though, was that 
Jamaica has some of the best athletes in the world, and George Fitch, who is the guy who kind of conceived of this idea of putting Jamaicans into the bobsled event, you know, you know it, was, it was kind of revolutionary at the time because you wouldn't expect Jamaicans to be necessarily good at bobsledding. But they had the Pushcart Derby, which is a very popular annual event in Jamaica where, you know, and they have fast runners, and that's what bobsledding is about. It's about getting the fast start and, you know, and then being able to steer this, you know, cart down this crazy uh, route. And so it, it revolutionized the fact that uh, non, non-winter sports countries could still compete and be a part of the Winter Olympics and, and these other events that weren't necessarily natural. And much like all the great Olympic sports, this was conceived as a bar bet. Yeah, exactly. George Fitch, who is now the mayor of Warrington, Virginia, uh, you know, met up with uh, you know, a friend. He was essentially down at a wedding in Jamaica, and uh, he kind of made a bet <laughs> with a guy that, like, hey, I bet you can't get you know, the Jamaicans into the Winter Olympics in some sort of sport. So he's flying home on the plane, and he started, he's going through all the different sports, and he had just seen the Pushcart Derby down there, and it just it clicked for him. And then he basically financed and bankrolled the whole thing. They were selling T-shirts and sweatshirts and, and things just to pay for meals and things to get them to the Olympics. They got an old sled from, like a used old sled from the, an old Canadian bobsled team that they, that they were rolling with, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it was like it was a very it was all done in six months. That's what people don't realize from the conception of this idea that they could compete in the games to when they actually were there in the Olympics in '88. It was like six months, and these guys, you know, had never walked on ice, they'd never driven a bobsled before, and they actually went and you know kind of took over the hearts and took over the storyline of the '88 Olympics. We're in conversation with Jason Reed, the director of Breaking the Ice, the true story of the 88 Jamaican bobsled team. You can view the uh, documentary at the Sports on Earth website, which is sportsonearth.com. You know, you mentioned it took six weeks for it to come around, but that was a two-man team. I thought one of the more interesting sub-stories in the documentary was that the four-man team had eight practice runs that was it ever before. ever right. and this is you know that's what is really the amazing part and we actually because it was a short form documentary you know we could have easily made a feature length documentary about this and one of the interesting interesting stories that didn't make uh the film is that they had five people who went over they had the two people who were going to continue the two man they had three alternates well over the course of sort of the olympics and them gaining the popularity two of the guys as george Butch Fitch puts it, went walkabout. They just sort of disappeared out selling T-shirts, doing the Olympics parties and stuff. So then they decided, because they had so much popularity and because Dudley Stokes, the driver, had the confidence to say, hey, we can compete in the four-man. And because certain Olympics rules weren't in place yet, uh, they were able to last-minute sneak in. They did eight runs before they ever went. But what the amazing part is they were short one guy. And Dudley Stokes' brother was in school in uh, Idaho, in the University of Idaho, and he flew over last minute to Calgary and and became their fourth member. They had to get like exceptions to the rule, and and he actually made it on the team. So it, I mean, it was just it, you know this thing couldn't happen anymore because they put rules against this after the Jamaicans because you know the, your Eastern European teams were like, well they're they're chewing up the ice, you know, and and sure enough, what everybody remembers is that the the big crash and the four man bobsled team did crash and and that was sort of like the movie or the moment that disney made famous and cool runnings that was you know had the slow clap with one person clapping then a couple other people and very disney-fied that that, that's what was taken over in popular lore but the true story about how it happened is, is really really fascinating and that's why we got involved in this project the coach that you speak to that that um he almost sounds like he's he's short of breath and, and incredibly emotional. I thought he, he was incredibly compelling as a, as a character in the movie. 
Yeah, and, I, you know, he's a guy that sort of, you know, they kind of, for the film, they combined him, the coach, with George Fitch, who was actually, you know, the guy who conceived it, into the John Candy role. And the John Candy role, you know, he was sort of like, you know, he was drinking, and he was kind of, you know, a caricature of, of these two guys together. And so to get to um, talk to Howard Seiler, who's, you know, he's, a, he's an older gentleman now, uh, and to see how big of an impact, you know, he was a gold medalist in the Olympics, American, uh, three-time gold medalist in the, in the bobsled. And this moment for him was probably, you know, at least on par with those gold medal Olympic moments for him. Like, this was truly a unique experience to go there with these guys that nobody gave them credit. And they, like I said, they took over kind of the consciousness of the Olympics that year. And, and he just, yeah, he, he, like you said, he brings a lot of heart. You know, he, he really, like, loved the experience and, and really, you know, I think all these guys, we interviewed two of the two of the guys that were on the team, they all want to, you know, remake history. They don't necessarily, you know, they like the fact that Cool Runnings happened because it did bring more attention to their story, and they're part of the reason why the team is so popular this year is because of this popular war that was built up. But at the same time, they recognized that, it was, you know, it was a Hollywood cartoon version of what actually happened. So because we made this film and everything, we had the opportunity to kind of show the story in a different light. And I think they were all, like, very open and giving to us in terms of the kind of comments and commentary they gave us about the experience. Finishing up with Jason Reed, director of Break, uh, Breaking the Ice. You can follow him on Twitter at Reed206, 206 being the area code for Seattle. How soon are you getting your Sonics back? Well, you know, we, we, uh, we're still fighting the fight. Uh, we didn't uh, end up getting the Kings, which was something that a lot of people expected to happen last time around this year. But, you know, I think that Seattle fans are, are patient, and, you know, we're actually happy that we didn't have to steal somebody else's team. I mean, you guys know the pain up there of, like, losing your guys' team, and, and we didn't want to have to do that to somebody else. And I think that, like, we all want a team back, but I think now in retrospect with all that, we're happy that it didn't come at the expense of another city, and we're really hopeful now that David Stern's gone that even though Adam Silver's been kind of reluctant to say he's interested in, in expansion, I think that expansion is an option for the NBA in the next couple of years as they renegotiate uh, their major television deals. And so we're pretty optimistic. You know, basically we're about two months away from the formal arena deal being done here, just passing environmental review. And at that point, we're just waiting for a guarantee from the NBA. That's all we need to put shovels in the ground and build a half a billion dollar arena, mostly privately funded here. But that, that arena won't get built unless the NBA guarantees us the team. So we're really hopeful in the next year or two that Adam Silver will see this opportunity to come back in the market to get Steve Ballmer, as, you know, who would instantly become the richest coach in professional sports or richest G, uh, <laughs> owner. owner in professional yeah. sports as part of the NBA club. And we're, we're, we're still really hopeful. Uh, but it's a long process, and, and uh, you know, we're just basking in the glory of our Super Bowl victory right now. Well, congrats on the Super Bowl victory, and I guess uh, to a lesser extent on landing Robinson Cano for your Mariners. <laughs> thank you, thank you. The Mariners need a lot more help, but that, that's a step in the right direction. It's a good start. It's a good start. And, uh, look, we wish you all the best, and I'm sure we'll speak uh, as you continue your campaign. Uh, we're all big fans of what you're trying to do. Awesome. Well, thanks for the support, guys. I'm always happy to come on the show. Thanks, Jason. All the best. All right, thanks, you too. There he goes, Jason Reed, director of Breaking the Ice, director of Sonic's Gate. Looking forward to finding out about that Kicker movie as well. Follow him on Twitter at Reed206. Jimmy, we're going to take a little break, come back, and we will speak with Torben Rolfson. 
our resident comic. This is the Jamaican bobsled song, the 2014 official song. I saw the video. Listening to the Kaufman Show with Dave Kaufman and Jay Farrar, only on TSN 690. Send in the clowns. Those daffy, laffy clowns. Send in those soulful and doleful schmoats by the bowlful clowns. Welcome back to the Kaufman Show on TSN 690. It is about that time in the place to be, ladies and gentlemen. Let's bring in our resident comedian. His name is Torben Rolfson. He joins us every Monday from beautiful, balmy Vancouver, British Columbia, home to another very warm winter games, if you all recall. Follow him on Twitter at VanGuy. Hello, Torben. Hey, guys. How's it going? We're great. How are you, man? Doing well. What's going on? Not too much. Just like you guys, watching a lot of uh, Olympics on TV. Yeah, you get it at more reasonable hours, though. You can, you know, it, it sort of starts up at like 2 o'clock in the morning here. It makes way more sense to watch at 11 o'clock at night. Yeah, the first events are at 9, right? And there's good stuff at midnight. So, yeah, as long as you have a flexible schedule, I haven't minded at all. I've heard people uh, complaining about it on the prairies and stuff, but it's been fine for me. Well, you know those people on the prairies, they like to complain. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> so, Saskatchewan. <laughs> It was Saskatchewan, but I'm not going to say who it was. <laughs> hey, I made a $100 prop bet that Canada-USA would be the women's hockey final. <laughs> <laughs> How should I spend my 10 cents winning? That's what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. This is the cutthroat hockey tournament. The bottom two teams will be relegated to the X Games. <laughs> Uh, Team Canada's goalie rotation seems to have stabilized. Going in, it was set at Price, Game 1 versus Norway, Luongo, Game 2 versus Austria, and Mike Smith, February 27th at Winnipeg. <laughs> Just sticking to that. I forgot that Mike Smith's there. <laughs> Did you? Game 2 was 6 nothing over Austria. The last time Roberto Luongo won a hockey game before that, it was still winter in Russia. <laughs> Are you surprised by the heat? I'm the only one who isn't because I remember walking around in a t-shirt in Vancouver during the Olympics. Yeah, It so seems that nobody Russian. from Vancouver remembers it, though. <laughs> Sochi in Russian is Siracha. Bob Costas. <laughs> <laughs> in, in other news. Yes. Bob Costas is that they found out what was wrong with his eyes. He stared too long at Norway's curling pants. There it is. <laughs> And speaking of curling clothes, it looked like because of the Olympic advertising ban, the U.S. men's team had to leave the Fly Emirates off their jerseys. <laughs> it's a joke for Premier League soccer fans. Yes, of course. I'm of sure course. he got it. <laughs> <laughs> well played, sir. Nice. Oh, no, you don't have any uh, wise words on Derek Jeter as well? 
Uh, got that coming up, yeah, in a few minutes here. Yeah, a little patience there, Coppin. Let the man finish his bit. Sorry, when he said finally, I thought that meant he was over. Oh. I, was, I was getting sad. Okay. Did I do something wrong? No, uh, no, no. Sochi no. has the first artless Olympic logo. It's an internet address. Right. Or the right mind would visit a Russian website. <laughs> nice. Beautiful, lonely, out-of-work Russian graphic designers want to meet you. <laughs> that one resonated on the other side of the glass. <laughs> That's nice. Uh, mass start bobsled would be cool. What? Math start bobsled would be cool. Math start? Mass start. Oh, mass start bobsled. My goodness. Yeah. That would be like Pamplona on ice. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be fantastic. <laughs> if Jenny Plachenko dropped out of the Olympics, his uh, spokesman, Roberto Duran, made a brief statement no mock. <laughs> Last second edition, Vladimir Putin has added ice fishing as a demonstration sport. He's trying to get rid of all the rainbow trout. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. Basketball, like Mitch Kupchak says the Lakers have a two- to three-year window in which to win an NBA championship. This is the most delusional window since Sarah Palin looked out hers and saw <laughs> Russia. <laughs> and finally, by request by Dave Coffin, Derek Jeter's final season. He's played in more postseason games than the Cubs and White Sox franchises combined. That's crazy. He's also broken more hearts than the Cubbies. <laughs> Darvin, what's going on this week? Uh, I'm going to watch some TV. Oh, awesome. So am I. Yeah. We should, uh, we should have a Skype date. We can watch it together. You can make me yeah, laugh. That, that sounds great. We'll do that. Follow him on Twitter at VanGuy. You'll join us next Monday? Absolutely. Awesome, Torben. Thanks so much for your time. All right. Thanks, Montreal. Have a good night. And Montreal's yelling out their windows for him to have a good night as well. Yes. And to all. And to all a good night. Yeah. There you go. Um, yeah, sorry to jump the gun on Torben there. I, uh, I heard the finally and I got scared. Don't shake your head at me. This is radio. No, if you're going to berate me, do it out loud. Okay. <laughs> you asked for it. <laughs> I did. That. You're going to watch the Olympics with him on Skype? Not really. That's very sweet. It was, it's just a thing it's you romantic. say. Over, it's a thing you say over radio. Oh, okay. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like me at the end of the show going, hey, you want to grab a drink? You know, Torben's yeah, at home just, right just... now. Very disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> you understand that, right? <laughs> That's two hearts broken tonight. Tor- First Katie Hines and now Torben Wilson. This isn't the Valentine's Day spectacular, Jay. Okay. What's going on? I thought on it was. Here? Wow. Well, I, I missed the boat. I missed the memo if they, if that was the case. <laughs> I hear you have a sports update coming up. I guess up. so. Yeah. yeah. You're going to tell us what's going on? Okay. I'll do that. Good. Yeah. Good. I will update the people. We will be considered updated. You will be at awesome. the end of this. Awesome. After that, we're going to hear from uh, Kimmy Blomers Carter, Gary Carter's daughter. We spoke with her last year, uh, had a wide-ranging conversation about about the uh, the last days and weeks um, that she got to spend with her dad. Mm-hmm. And it was a memorable conversation, a memorable moment in the show, and uh, we're really excited to play it for you again. Jimmy, let's take a break. You're listening to The Kaufman Show on TSN 690. You can follow me on Twitter at The Kaufman Show. My awesome co-host, Mr. Jay Farrar, is at the Farrar side. And we'll be back. Now, Dave Kaufman hosts The Kaufman Show with Dave Kaufman, but also Jay Farrar. The Kaufman Show, only on TSN 690.
there, Rusty gushed about Jerry, but I knew it couldn't be without talking to Gary. Had to tell him all about the day six years prior, the night of his last game, the night kid retired. Had tickets in the beaches, but I snuck down, needed to say bye the only way I knew how. I told him I made a sign, spent all night drawing, and all I wanted was to make sure that he saw it. The slightest acknowledgement would have been worth the while, but I was thrilled when I got a thumbs up and a smile. We stood together singing the anthem loud. Most of the cameras held my sign up proud. The next morning, Dad showed me the paper cover. There is Gary Han on heart and me right above him. When I told Kid the story, he smiled and asked my name and said he had that same pic at home in a frame. Today I got it hanging in my studio office. It's signed, God bless you, the kid, Gary Kaufman. Welcome back to the Kaufman Show. Dave Kaufman and Jay Farrar. We're going to uh, go back into the vault right now and play our interview from just about exactly this time last year with Gary Carter's daughter, Kimmy. We, uh, we were all affected by, by Gary Carter's passing two years ago. Uh, the exact date was two years ago yesterday. And uh, look at how far baseball in Montreal has come since then. With every bad comes the good. Yeah. And uh, sometimes, you know, you can, uh, it's, it's, it's just, it's something solid that came out of something tragic, which is so often, you know, something that doesn't happen. And I'm just glad that it did. We uh, are. Even if nothing comes of it. Hey, absolutely. It, when Gary Carter died, it reminded a lot of people just how important baseball was to them and to their growing up. And a lot of people who are older than us, who who really remember the great years of Carter, were suddenly 12-year-old kids again Mm -hmm. and uh, couldn't believe that the kid was no more. And uh, his memory lives on in this city and will for a very, very long time. Just have to go over to Rue Gary Carter to see how much he means. That's it. Without any further ado... And we'll say goodnight to you all now. Uh, Jay, thank you very much. Thank you, and thanks, kid, for sparking the rallying cry in Montreal. What has been like for you? It has been kind of an emotional roller coaster um, because I know that, you know, with life, um, I'm doing what Dad would want me to do and um, to move forward and to, you know, enjoy life and enjoy all the blessings that I've been given. So I've been doing that. I've been continuing to coach. I had my second baby, um, my second baby girl, um, six months after dad had passed almost, I mean, actually to the day, it was August 16th, dad had passed February 16th. And, uh, you know, it's been, so there's been a lot of joy that has happened. Um, just a lot of great things, but it's been sad not to have dad with me and my family, different things that he can enjoy too. Um, so it's been, I mean, it's hard, you know, I'm, I'm not with somebody who, you know, is around that I love very much. And, that supported me my whole life and somebody who I love to hang out with and spend time with. And that's my wonderful dad. So it's just been up and down. And um, it's just crazy to think that this Saturday is already going to be a year that he's been gone. You guys were, um, you had a very special father-daughter relationship. It it seemed that almost like a friendship more than your typical father-daughter relationship. Could you talk a bit about that? Yes. We, uh, we were, um, well, you know, the whole, when I was back in middle school, you know, those, those ages, I think, I think um, all parents want to pass that age because that's the age where we feel like us middle schoolers know everything. And uh, so we, uh, we had that relationship where I was like, Dad, you don't know what you're talking about and things like that on the field, which obviously he knew. <laughs> he knew very well how to coach. Um, but I was just getting into fast pitch when I was 14, and so he started to coach me um, 
when fast pitch just came around. Like I said, I started at a very late age. You know, I did the t-ball thing, slow pitch thing, but fast pitch wasn't until 14. And he had told me, you know, encouraged me to be a catcher. And that's where it all started. And I put his gear on and, um, you know, he taught me to be the catcher that I became and then encouraged me to also start coaching. And, you know, then we had that relationship there where, um, you know, he was the Palm Beach Atlantic baseball coach and I was the softball coach. And this is, this is my seventh year this year, and this would have been dad's fourth year. Um, his third year, he was sick, and then so he was able to coach for two years strong. Um, but our relationship was very strong. I mean, it wasn't just about the game. I mean, it wasn't just about baseball and softball. That was definitely a very fun part of our relationship as far as just talking strategy and talking about the game and, you know, that kind of stuff. But it was also just um, just that we loved each other, you know. I mean, he loves he, – We are, there's three kids in the family. I'm – one of three and and then you know of course my mom and so I mean our family in general are just extremely close and we just like to spend time together and um you know and when people tell me that they remind me uh, they they remind them of my dad it's a very big compliment because I think my dad's great so it uh you know we did we had a very very good relationship one that I'll always treasure I imagine that uh, it was your father's uh, deep faith and devotion that allowed you to find that as well, right? Oh, absolutely. My parents um, raised us in a Christian home. Um, we went to church. We um, you know, we prayed together. We um, certainly weren't the, the, the perfect family, but there is no, there's no such thing as the perfect family. But yes, our, our everyday life centered around the Lord and our biblical foundation and that was extremely important to us, and we still do that even in our own homes. I'm married now with two daughters, and my sister has her husband and her two sons, and then my um, brother just got married four days after Christmas, this past Christmas, and, uh, you know, we're all starting our own families and continuing on those traditions, and that's something that we we know that family and relationships together is having the Lord in, in, their, in our life, and so that's definitely been something that's been extremely important to us, and that we will always carry on, um, you know, because that's just the number one thing <laughs> um, that, that we consider very important for us. Well, it was also something that, that I imagine helped you greatly through uh, through your dad's illness. Absolutely. Well, I know that the world was able to read Caring Bridge. Um, that was something that became such an amazing tool because the media and friends and family members all were able to read that and get updates weekly about dad's sickness and what was going on with us as a family. And, and you'll see on every single caring bridge, um, site, every, every single entry that I wrote, um, there was verses that backed up how I felt and how our family felt and what we were going through and how we were getting through the struggles and through the storm that we were in. And so, um, without a doubt, we are getting through what we're getting through not only when I was sick, but now, now that he's gone, we are getting through it because of our faith in the Lord and because of our biblical foundations and because we are, we know where dad is and we know that with our relationship with the Lord that, you know, that we are going to see him again someday. And so we have that hope. And that's where dad had pure peace from the moment he got sick. He had peace the entire time he was sick because he knew that if this fight was not going to the one, you know, one that we all were fighting for was for him to beat this. He knew where he would be, and he would be called home to the Lord. The uh, Caring Bridge website uh, is something that, that a lot of families uh, use and, and find quite therapeutic. Um, what was that process like for you, Kimmy? Well, it all started off when 
when my dad was first, um, when we, we first found the tumors um, down here in Florida, uh, we knew that we were having to make a trip up to Duke. And at the time, I was able to see the only kid to go up there. Um, and so I went up there with my mom and dad, and we ended up being up there for 11 days. But uh, we went up there, and, and basically it was, you know, a way for me to, first of all, share it with first family and friends. And so instead of people calling and texting and all that kind of stuff, we were dealing with so much that we figured, well, we'll go ahead and, you know, I'll go ahead and write on this website, and then people can just log in. And then it became such a nationwide, even worldwide thing that we just let people have access, anybody to have access, because in the media, nobody bothered us. The whole nine months that Dad was sick, we didn't get anybody to bother us or, you know, there, all the information that was out in the newspapers and out in the magazines and everything were all true because everybody quoted, you know, exactly what I wrote. And the experience was, I would say, very therapeutic because that's my major. I was an English major. Um, that's something that I like to do is I like to write. Um, I never thought that my type of writing would be, you know, publicly shown so much, but it became such a blessing for me. It became a blessing for my family, for my dad, because um, we were very real. We let everybody on the journey with us and get everybody to know what was going on, how to pray for us, how to pray for my dad. And, um, and a thousand percent, those words were not mine. Um, you know, not everybody is a believer, but I will tell you now that those were not my words. Those were completely Lord using me, and those were his words, that he wanted to very much share with the world. <laughs> One of the things that you wrote, and I'm going to read a quote back to you from the final okay. update that you uh, that you wrote on the Caring Bridge website. Thank you for loving yes. my dad and my entire family. I will still share with you all the last four weeks because they were incredibly special. What was yeah. that last month like? Basically, what happened was is the, the moment that the doctor had come over, um, he told us that dad had I think it was three to five weeks to live. And we were all told that in my parents' family room. And my dad's reaction was, well, that wasn't the news we wanted to hear. All calm like that. And he, um, you know, I don't think he knew where, really where that state was because he was very much, you know, very much getting closer to his time. But we, uh, when I say it was a special last four weeks, um, I will say it was very difficult for dad. He never knew it was difficult um, for the most part because he wasn't a hundred percent really aware of everything. There were days he was aware and other days he was not, but my brother had a big impact. He was physically able to help dad because um, there weren't moments where dad could get up or, you know, walk or anything like that. And we had um, a night nurse come and stay with us Um to help dad and um you know so physically and emotionally that part wasn't very fun to see because dad had more than like a cough (laughs) growing up he was never sick or never hurt or anything like that so that was definitely different for us to see but it was we just all rallied as a family and we spent just extreme quality time together and um, it was just something that we will always treasure It's, it's you know specific details I really there's not like you know, certain things that happen um, that, you know, are just <laughs> this big old story, except I know that February 8th was the last evening my dad was staying at my parents' house, um, and that was my parents' 37th wedding anniversary, and we ordered food from his, from their favorite restaurant that they went to every year for their anniversary, and we ate it at home, and then we watched um, my wedding video, my sister's wedding video, my brother's, you know, birthday parties and different things that, sorry, that's my baby. 
background. That's all right. That's great. Um, but, you know, just we just watched videos together and just, you know, laughed and cried and all that kind of stuff. But just really the last four weeks was just spending time together and just making that as comfortable as possible because it really wasn't, was not an easy um, part of those last four weeks. And um, the deep to, to hear as far as what he had to go through, but never complained. And he was always, you know, very positive and just, he, you know, allowed us to take care of him. And we were, he had taken care of us for so many years in other ways. And this is our way to say, dad, we love you. And there's no way you're going to do this alone. And so, um, you know, that's kind of the sum of the four weeks that uh, we had experienced. And then other things too, like his best friend from California came down and then, you know, and, and other, other friends and his brother came down and, you know, and those, and we knew those were all the last times that they would see him. And so those were just other special moments, um, very tough moments, but special moments that, you know, wonderful people that loved him were able to spend good time with him, um, you know, for the last time. The uh, final ball game that he attended at uh, Palm Beach University, I know a lot of those photos were disseminated in the press, and that must have been an incredibly emotional moment. Yeah, it was. Um, he he went there, and um, it was the most emotional thing because he we started off in left field, and he was sitting on a golf cart. This is the guys were getting ready for the game, and it was you know pregame, and they were you know kind of throwing the ball around and things like that, getting ready. And Dad was in the golf cart, and he um, was riding from left field to right field. And all of a sudden, as he was about to approach right field, um, his players literally were dropping gloves, dropping balls, dropping bats, doing whatever it took to drop everything and run over to him. And so you see this entire team running over. And I remember, too, uh, when Dad was in the cart as he was driving over. And, again, he was. this was two weeks before he passed, so he was not really – he was there – but a lot of him was also not 100%, but if you saw the look in his eyes as he saw that baseball field that he was riding on, it's like he was he was home. It was like he just – you could just see this big smile on his face um, as he was on that park and on that field. And, um, and, of course, he was very blown up from the medication and everything, but I tell you, here he is two weeks before he passes, and he knew every single player's name. He shook their hands. He said, go get them, boys, and, you know, go out with the big win, and they did. And then right before the game started, um, they put him on the golf cart again, and there was just a big state innovation before the game started. So it was, it, was, it, was, it was very emotional, and it's very hard to watch that video, but he was, he was the happiest he had been um, by being out on that field. And interestingly enough, the very next day when we, when we said, Dad, wasn't that special? He actually didn't even remember it. I mean, that's just kind of how his brain was. It was just moments where he would, he was on his A game and knew people and knew what was going on. And then other moments where he, he didn't because of the tumors. We're in conversation with Kimmy Blomers Carter on the Kaufman show, Dave Kaufman and Jay Farrar. Kimmy is, I'm sure you're well aware of uh, a lot of young boys in Montreal grew up idolizing your dad in the late 70s. And and girls too. And girls too, yeah. And yeah. Uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, including my brother who became a catcher just because of your dad. He, later on, he was seen at, uh, at uh, your dad's last game here in Montreal holding a sign up, that famous sign behind him while your dad listened to the national anthem. Later on, my brother became a, a kind of a music guy here in this city and did okay. did a tribute to your dad uh, just recently. I was wondering if you heard it 
and uh, what you thought. Anakin Slade, that's my brother. Okay, okay. Well, yes, I did, and and, um, and I did not realize that you, you know, that that was your brother. But no, I know exactly who he is, and um, I mean, obviously through the internet. You know, I've gotten to know him through his um, beautiful song that he wrote about my dad, and that wonderful set of pictures and everything. And I think he also sang up there when my mom and brother went up to that's right Canada. that's right yep. yeah it was it was a special tribute up there too um no it was it was beautiful and i mean gosh all these tributes you you type in and you google gary carter and youtube all these beautiful things come up and you know and articles and it's just it's been overwhelming in a very positive way and i'm just so incredibly grateful and thankful that i had a dad that just was <laughs> so wonderful that he was just such a nice person to other people and he was so genuine and um and that people want to talk about him and they want to be like him and they want to you know remember him and gosh like you know i can't ask for a better dad that i got to to have for my 32 years of life you got to share or you you were almost forced to share him with fans with media with with so many people throughout your whole life was there a point growing up where that felt like a burden to you well, there's actually um, a funny story. My mom and dad would tell me when I was, I guess when I was little, I was very bold, and I guess I'm still that way now. I have that, you know, very bold personality. But um, I guess, like, we'd get dinner sometimes, and, you know, different fans would come up, and I would very clearly say, he's my dad, we're eating dinner, and, you know, like, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Like, I would be, I'd have no problem telling people you know, get out of the way, you know, I'm with my family. But, I mean, growing up, though, I mean, what a fun lifestyle. I don't know any other other way, but, I mean, you know, the fast pace and people banging on the car doors and, Gary, we love you, and, you know, all that stuff is a, is a lot of fun. You know, we had fan mail, and, I mean, you know, it's just a lot of fun to think about how many people idolize your dad. And, you know, of course there were moments where I'm like, okay, enough already, not baseball. Let's go play like a game of Monopoly and let's just, you know, whatever. But we were just a very normal family. And um, I think actually normal, but yet abnormal in the celebrity world because my parents were together. They were high school sweethearts. They were committed to each other. They, We had a strong love for the Lord. We were a great family and we traveled everywhere together. We would leave about two months early from school every year and we would finish our school wherever dad was and we supported him throughout his career and you know I mean that kind of stuff I'll treasure forever I mean we were just very 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 close to the family and we still are I mean I know we don't have dad but if it wasn't for my mom and dad's first foundation and us learning about what true love is and and what it takes to be a great family I mean you know now we're able to instill that in our own family and um I'll I'll just always always treasure that and be forever grateful. Kimmy, were you born in Montreal? I was born in Montreal in 1980, October 6, 1980. Um, and yeah, that was Expo. So I'm the only Canadian. Well, I'm American, but you know, I was born in Canada. Out of the three kids, I was the only one. Now, you were obviously quite young when he was traded to the Mets, but uh, you must have some memories of coming back here for your dad's final season. Oh, yeah. That was, um, I want to say, 91 or 92. Yeah, I, I do remember. We used to live um, in this, you know, cute place. Up in, up, I don't even know where the specifics were, but, I mean, I just I just really liked it. I remember I was very much wanting to learn French, and, you know, I, the people are so kind up there, and, um, you know, they just, they do. I feel like my dad was like the 
the God of Canada or something. I don't know what you want to call it, but he just—he was very much loved. I should say it that way. That he was just—he was just the face of Canada, um, and and that was really cool to be, you know, the daughter of somebody that people love so much. So I felt like I automatically, you know, had this wonderful family and an entire country, you know, um, because they loved my dad so much. So and it must have been wild was, to see things like a, a billboard on the highway with your dad's face on it. Oh, absolutely. But all but all growing up, though, you have to remember, like, you know, I even had like, like, um, spiral notebooks and like folders with my dad on them. So I'd go to school and that would be normal for me to have like, you know, lunch boxes of dad or I'd have, you know, things like that. So I mean, all that was, it's just how it was. But I mean, yeah, Canada, they, they didn't mess around. They loved Gary Carter. (laughs) And it was very evident. And we felt loved. We felt very welcome. My mom will say over and over again, the 11 years were just unbelievable being part of the expo. He loved those years. The relationship much. felt very reciprocal, though. Uh, he always made an effort in this city and with the fans here, even just something as simple as trying to speak a few words of French. He would go to a French teacher here in Florida, and he wanted to learn French, and, and he did that out of respect for um, being an expo, and I remember that. And he learned, he knew the entire um, Canada, you know, the, I guess you guys call it the national anthem, or do you call it the, what do you call it? Yeah, it's our national anthem, Oh Canada. Okay, Oh, oh Canada. Yeah, he knew that in French, and he, um, I mean, yeah, he was, he very much wanted to be a part of whatever he's, a, but this is how my personality is too, and um, I guess all of our, my whole family is, but if you are a part of something, you go 100%. If you want something, you go 100%. And that's how Dad was. But he, you know, he was a part of the Expo, so he wanted to be as much, you know, in that Canada world as possible. And so, yeah, he embraced it. He embraces that kind of stuff. And he, uh, he, you know, he loved being being up there, you know. And he, got, he had great memories that he would share with us all the time. I have a few questions about things that happened in your dad's career I'm wondering if you could comment on. His last, okay. his last game in Montreal. I was 90, well, I think it was 91 or 92. I'm trying to remember when he retired. Was it 93 when he retired or 92? I think it was 92. Yeah, I think I was 11 when he he was there. I remember that very much. Um, I remember the hit over Andre Dawson's head. I remember the big old, you know, fist pump at second base. I remember him being so fired up and, the joke was always if Dad had a good game, we would go home with Dad. And then if Dad had a bad game, we would go home with Mom. It depended on who <laughs> we went home with after the game. So I think we definitely went home with Dad after that game because <laughs> he was pretty excited. But, uh, no, it was – I mean, yeah, I totally remember that. I'm telling you, I remember, too, when um, we had the uh, – when Dad retired and you guys had the amazing ceremony and we um, – the, the, his number was retired. And we pulled that big banner down and – you know, we were all holding hands, walking from home to, to left field. And that was, I mean, well, if anybody saw a video of me, I was the one that was bawling my eyes out the whole time because I'm an all or nothing kind of person. <laughs> I was I was pretty emotional. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's two memories for sure that I'll never forget. Very, very special. The other one would be Cooperstown. <laughs> yes, Cooperstown. But I was actually going to say one more thing as sure. far as Canada. But I remember him. Um, get into the Canadian um, Baseball Hall of Fame, and that was that was another unbelievable thing. I mean, the crowd of people and the people that were just 
so respectful of my family and just so excited. I think I got a little extra attention because they knew that I was born in Canada. So I think <laughs> out of the three kids, I got a little little extra smile. Um, but uh, but yeah, but Cooperstown. I mean, my goodness, that was just that was an unbelievable experience. Um, the words that my dad said. I actually, since dad has passed, that's been giving me the most comfort is um, watching his Hall of Fame speech over and over again because he was able to share, you know, in his words, words to me, words to my brother, words to my sister, words to my mom and friends and family. And I'm able to hear that over and over again, him telling me, I love you, kiddo. I'm, I'm proud of you. I'm, you know, all those things. And I knew that, but since I can't hear his voice anymore, now I can hear it, you know, anytime I want to on YouTube. Um, but that was an amazing experience. Just, you know, I'm still in awe actually after this many years, that my dad's a major league baseball player, baseball hall of famer, you know, the, one of the best catchers ever. And, you know, because I think it's so mind boggling because my dad was my dad and he acted like an amazing dad and did not treat us, you know, that he was too, too bad, you know, too much. They, he was better than other people. He just, he was a genuine human being. And I think it just so mind boggles me that he, you know, did all that he did and, um, you know, that, that he's considered famous, you know, it's just, it's still at this age, I still am like, Oh yeah, dad was pretty awesome. <laughs> oh yeah. I forgot how much he did. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but I mean, so many memories. I mean, I'll say over and over again, and if it wasn't for my mom and dad, obviously I would not have the life that I have now. I mean, just for many, many reasons, but they together made this amazing team and I just, I'm blown away and I'm, incredibly blessed that um, I had Gary Carter as my dad, and then I'm continuing to have Sandy Carter as my mom. Uh, the city of Montreal announced uh, about six months ago that they'll be naming a street after your dad. It's uh, a street that's adjacent to Jerry Park, where uh, he first broke into the big leagues. Will your family be yes. making it up for the uh, for when the street is named for him? Yes. Um, apparently, they haven't given us a date yet, but we told them that the first weekend of May works the best for us, but we still haven't heard confirmation. But if it is the first weekend of May, our whole family will be up there. Well, that would so we're be, hoping uh... <laughs> we're hoping it's the first weekend of May. If anybody's listening to that, <laughs> we'll uh, we'll see what strings we can pull. Um, finally, and, and and I want to thank you again for your time tonight. We really really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, how will Gary Carter, the person, not the player, be remembered? Well, from me, he'll be remembered as my dad. Um, my amazing dad who loved me, who cared for me, who supported me, encouraged me, was one of my best cheerleaders when I was a player, um, a man of the Lord, loved Jesus, um, loved his wife, um, was committed to his family and his wife, and um, I don't know, I just can't say enough things about him. He's just, he's, he's what anybody can imagine their, you know, hero could be like. That's what my dad is my dad was. He lived his life genuinely. Um, he was an honest man. Um, he worked so, so, so hard and it was all about family. It was all about, you know, family. And, uh, so I'm, you know, I, I'll, I could brag about him forever. <laughs> he is my dad, but not everybody can say that about their dad, but I know for me, I could, I could talk about him forever. And I get very emotional thinking about, you know, that he's not here, but I know where he is. And I know that he's watching over me and my family. And, um, you know, he, he's just remembered for so many great things. And he lived a life um, more than, I think, 
10 people combined could have lived. And the things that he did for people and the community and the way he loved others, um, I mean, I'm just I'm thankful that I can uh, remember him and then try every day to be more like him, <laughs> you know, as I grow up. Listen up, kid, it's not what you think Stayed out too late, had a little too much to drink Walk home, cross the bridge, when the marquee shut down There's a reason that I love this town Nobody cares how much money you have If you've got enough to get in a cab There'll be drinks on the house if your house burns down There's a reason that I love this town I saw your band In the early days We all understand Why you moved away We'll hold a breath Shot the shit with miniature Tim. If he needs a tune, then I'll write one for him. We like the same books and we like the same sounds. There's a reason that I love this town. I played a show in Kelowna last year. Said, Pick it up, Joel. We're dying in here. Picture one hand clapping, then picture half that sound. There's a reason that I hate that town If you saw my band In the early days Then you Down in our suit, some French restaurant. I saw Riviere de Lune last night at the tour. We burnt the place to the ground. There's a reason that I love this town. There's a reason that I love this town. There's a reason that I love this town. sound like 